Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. When we look at the Bible today and we say the Bible is God's Word, people say, oh no, you know, that's ridiculous. The Bible's just the ideas and opinions of men. What proof is there uh, that the Bible is God's Word? Well, there are many things that support the, the claim that the Bible is God's Word, but just to cut to the chase, the proof is prophecy. God has declared from the beginning what will happen in the future. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Isaiah chapter 41 through chapter 42, verse 9. Now, here's Pastor Brian. The reason she learned it is because it was on a little plaque on her wall, and her dad read it to her and taught it to her, and she memorized it, and then she, of course, learned to read a little bit later. But I think, wow, what a wonderful thing for a five-year-old to know. Think about that again, what the Lord says here. I, the Lord, your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. And you know, whether you're five or 25 or 55 or 85, that fear not word is a word that we all need, right? And it's a a word that we need today. So he goes on, fear not, you worm, Jacob. Now, when God speaks of Jacob as a worm, a worm is, you know, the most helpless of creatures. I mean, what what can a worm do, right? You just step on it and crush it and there's, there's nothing it can do about it. And this is how Jacob perceives himself at this point, that he's utterly helpless. He's utterly incapable of doing anything for himself. And yet the Lord says, to fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And now look what he says in verse 15. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So God says to them, I'm going to make you into a new threshing sledge. And a threshing sledge was an instrument that would thresh the grain. It was a harvesting tool, basically, is what it was. And so God is saying to the nation that is in captivity, that is under the heel of the Babylonians, they can't see that there's any possibility that their circumstances are ever really going to change. God says, not only are you going to be liberated from this captivity, I am going to make you into an instrument that I'm going to use for my glory. And so, what a, again, what a great promise. Now, at the risk of getting too personal, I don't want to get too personal here, but again, this is one of those strange passages that God spoke into my life many, many years ago. I still have the Bible uh, that I had back then, probably now over 30 years ago. And if I would have thought about it, I would have brought that Bible because I have pinned in the margin of the Bible, 
the date when God gave me this as a promise. Now, this, this is such a strange promise, right? And to me, it was so strange when the Lord gave it to me. But again, I was in a, I was in a place in my life where I was very ill and it was just a, a struggle to get by from day to day. And I remember being at a point where I was almost despairing. I just, I just felt like I can't, I can't keep going on like this. I don't know if I can go on another day. And, and I remember I was alone. I was in um, my office at the time. I had an office that was kind of isolated from the, the rest of the church. And I was there by myself in my office. And I remember um, having an amazing experience of the presence of the Lord uh, filling my, room, my office. I mean, I just, I literally felt like Jesus walked into the room and showed me verse 15 of chapter 41. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. Now, I knew the presence of the Lord was there and I knew the Lord was showing me this word, but this was such a strange word. I didn't even know what it meant. And, and yet it brought this strange sense of comfort to me. And I remember later thinking how that had to be God because, so I am a stickler for the context of scripture. I don't like to take things out of context. I want, I want to see them in their context. I want to apply them in their context. And I recognize that sometimes, you know, God does allow us to do that. But, but I'm really the person who's going to, I'm, I'm going to first and foremost stick with the context. So I look at this and I think, well, first of all, it's such a, a strange verse, make you into a new threshing sledge. Secondly, it, it applies to Israel. But I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was something that God had put on my heart. And, and part of it was I knew that I would never in a million years think to apply this verse to myself. I didn't even know what it meant. But, but again, the context wouldn't allow for me to do that. But I knew the Lord had given it to me. And now all of that to say, without going into any further detail, from that day to this day, I have seen, because the Lord showed me what it meant, and I have seen this word fulfilled uh, in my life over and over a number of times. And, and I've even had times where I have been perplexed about my circumstances, and this word would come back to me as the, the answer to my perplexity. The Lord would remind me, I told you this, and this is what is happening here. That word, Isaiah 41, 15, is the explanation for this current situation. So again, I'm saying that uh, mainly because I really want to drive home and encourage you to receive the promises of God as he, as he gives them. And, and like I said, this was a, an extraordinary moment in my life. I mean, it's been so many years now, and I can remember it like it was yesterday because it was so profound. And, and we will have those times in our lives as the people of God. We have a relationship with the living God. And just like he met the prophets and he met Moses and he met the saints of old, uh, he meets with us in our lives as well at times during certain seasons. And he speaks powerful things into our lives. And so he goes on and in verse 17 and, and again, here we're looking at the, the future promises of blessing, but I, I connect these two to one another. God's going to take Israel. He's going to make them into this new threshing sledge. And then as a result of that, he says, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. This is the current condition. I, the Lord, will hear them. 
I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia tree, the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. And so what is God promising? He's promising that he's going to turn the wasted, desolate desert land into a lush, beautiful, green, forested area. And of course, he's speaking poetically here. So he's talking about renewing the lives of his people, taking people from a place of of barrenness and dryness and desolation to a place of fruitfulness, a place of of blessing and, and prosperity and those things. And it's the promise that God has given. I love that picture there of opening rivers in the desolate heights and making the wilderness a pool of water. And you know, just if you've, if you've ever been to the Middle East, if you've ever been uh, around that area there in Israel, you will know that a pool of water is a very refreshing thing in that land. And so he goes on in verse 20, and he says that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So this is a promise again, God's gonna renew his people in the future and he's gonna bless them. But I think too, there's something that we can apply to our situation. And this is a picture of going from a dry and barren and desolate state to a, a place of flourishing, a place of flowing waters. And you know, it's kind of like a, a picture of what happens when God pours out his spirit on a dry and thirsty and barren land or even a, a person's life and, and brings this new growth and this new uh, fruitfulness and, and all of that. So I look at these verses and I think, you know, these promises are all connected together. And, and I think we can even take these and we can, we can hope for a fresh work of God's spirit in our generation and know that this is what God does. He's in the habit of doing these things. And we can pray and ask him to do these things in our generation and to start with us, to take the barren areas of our life, to take the dryness and to just refresh us um, with that living water that we read about in the scriptures. And so now verse 21, speaking now, he'd just been speaking to Israel. Now he's gonna come back and he's gonna talk about the idols. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. So he's talking now about the idols. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. So what the, the Lord is saying about the idols, he says, okay, so let, let's think about it. What have the idols told us in the past that we can now look today and say, wow, it's just like they said. It happened just like they said. Well, the point is they can't, there's nothing. Um, they're, they're not able to do that. Uh, and then he says, or declare to us things to come. 
show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Now, as we go through these uh, chapters here, this is one of the things that God's going to do. He's, he's consistently contrasting himself with the idols and he's showing the futility of idol worship because they're just blocks of wood, as we're going to read here a little bit later, but they can't do anything. And the Lord not only can do things, but he can tell the future. And this is one of the ways that he sets himself apart. And this is one of the thing that, that things that distinguish God from all of the false gods is that he knows the future and that he tells the future and he tells it with 100% accuracy. And this is one of the reasons why we know the Bible is God's word, not man's word, because it's filled with prophecy. It's filled with, um, like, like even I said in the beginning, we're, we're reading, the, the passages we're reading were written approximately 200 years before any of the events happened. And then they happened just exactly as they were written. And so when we look at the Bible today and we say, uh, the Bible is God's word, people say, oh no, you know, that's ridiculous. The Bible's just the, you know, it's just the ideas and opinions of men. Uh, what proof is there? Uh, that the Bible is God's word. Well, there are many things that support the, the claim that the Bible is God's word, but just to cut to the chase, the proof is prophecy. God has declared from the beginning what will happen in the future. And he and he only can do that. And, and we could just pause and go through a series of fulfilled prophecy and we could look and see the date uh, that the prophecy was given, and we could see the fulfillment of it in history, and we can see that all the way uh, from through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and we can even see how uh, in our lifetime things are, are being fulfilled. So that's the claim that the Lord has given, that he alone is able to tell us things that are going to come. So he says, regarding these false gods, yes, do good or do evil, do something good, do something bad, do something that we may dismayed, be dismayed and see it together. So, you know, if you're a God, do something that, that proves that you're a God. That's what he's saying to them. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. And the one who chooses you is an abomination. Now, lest we just think that the ancient people were foolish to have these little idols and things. Know this, that there are many cultures today who still engage in idol worship, just like the Babylonians did. They have images, they bow down to them, they bring food offerings to them. You can find this kind of stuff all over the world today. Now, in the sophisticated Western world that we happen to live in, some people will look at this and say, this is so foolish, this is so ridiculous. Of course, we would never do anything like that. But we do have idols just like other cultures do. They're, they're just, they're different. The idols, they might not be in some shrine somewhere, unless you want to call your dock where your yacht is parked. Uh, um, that's that's the, the shrine area or your Ferrari or, or whatever it might be. The point is materialism is an idol today. Many, many things are idols today. The ancient idols, the image itself had a concept that was connected to it. So the image was just a means of worshiping the idea. 
So we've sort of, in some ways, done away with the image, but we still have the idea. So we still worship the idea. We still idolize material things. We idolize wealth. We idolize prosperity. We idolize our own personal comfort and those kinds of things. Idolizing meaning this is the top priority of our lives and we live for it. So, but the thing that God points out all the way through in dealing with these idols is the fact that they really can't do anything for you. They don't bring you prosperity. They can't sustain your prosperity. And when your prosperity runs out, they can't help you. And, you know, once again, we're, we're seeing this reality become obvious right, right before our eyes. Because now faced with something that we can't just fix, all of our money can't fix it. All of our technology can't fix it. All of our brilliance can't fix it. All of the things that we normally have our confidence in, we have our hope in, we have our, our trust in, these are our idols today. But we see when things really get desperate, just like in the ancient days, these, these idols could do nothing. When Cyrus came and conquered Babylon, which was the idol factory of the ancient world, the idols did nothing absolutely nothing. Cyrus came in, conquered them, and uh, the idols were of no help. And, and so it is today. Those things that we worship, those things that we live for, they, they might uh, benefit us at a, at a certain time, under certain circumstances, but when the real difficult things come in life, they're of no value. And so this is where the Lord is constantly contrasting himself with them. But as we go on in verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, going back now to prophesying Cyrus again. And so he will come from the rising of the sun. He shall call on my name. Now, Cyrus was not a believer in the, the truest sense of the word, but he honored the Lord. And it would have been Cyrus who allowed the Jews to go back and to rebuild the temple and provided for them to be able to do that. And so he honored the Lord in that sense. And even from history independent of the Bible, we know that that was the demeanor of Cyrus in regard to the various gods of the nations, but specifically and particularly toward the Lord God of Israel. And so he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows, surely there is no one who declares, surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. So Cyrus is going to come. He's going to deal with Babylon. The people are going to be delivered from the captivity. And Jerusalem is going to be restored. And so I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. So when God, God is talking about the work that he's doing, and he's basically saying that there's no person that is able to do what is God alone can do and what God alone 
will do. And so now we come to chapter 42. And in chapter 42, we are introduced now. And again, here's the contrast. I looked and there was no one, God says. But now he says, behold, my servant. So here we are introduced to the servant of the Lord. And these servant passages, these are the messianic passages of Isaiah. As I said early on in the study, Isaiah is the prophet of the Messiah. And so here is a messianic prophecy. In other words, it's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus. Now, again, he's referred to in these chapters 40, here in uh, chapter 42, on through chapter 53 as the servant of the Lord. But there's something that we need to know as well. Israel is also referred to as the servant of the Lord. And even in these chapters, we have to really look closely at the context to see, is it the Jesus, the Messiah, who is being referred to, or is it the nation of Israel? Now, why are they both called Israel? That seems confusing. Well, you see, God's plan for Israel was that they would be his servant and they would fulfill his purposes. And then out from them would come the Messiah. But the nation as Israel, they fail. They never attain to what God intended for them. But there's one among them who does. And so he is the perfect Israelite, if you will. So the Messiah becomes what Israel never was. He becomes what Israel should have been in the sense of what God intended. So again, we'll see in these passages that just to, you know, we'll, we'll see the servant passages and then sometimes it'll be clear that it's the Messiah's servant that's being spoken of because of the context. And sometimes it'll also be clear that it is, it, it has to be Israel that's being referred to. So I doubt that we're going to be able to make it through the entire chapter, but let's just jump in here. But behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. And so now here God is speaking, notice very tenderly regarding his servant, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, lest you doubt that this is a prophecy about the Messiah, all you have to do is turn to Matthew chapter 12 and you will find that it is indeed a prophet of the Messiah, a prophecy of the Messiah, because Matthew quotes it and he applies it to Jesus. He says at a certain point that Jesus did these things and it was a fulfillment of the verses that we're reading right here. So what does God say? He says, he's my elect in whom my soul delights. He says, I put my spirit upon him. And notice he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Whoa, to the Gentiles, wait. He's supposed to be the Messiah of Israel. He's supposed to do all that he does on behalf of Israel. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. 
Words can change their meaning over time, or they can carry a different meaning depending on the context in which they are used. So what is the meaning today of words in the Bible like faith, grace, hope, or peace? Do these words still have the same meaning today? Do you really understand what they mean in the Bible? These words not only have a rich history of meaning that is found within the whole Bible, but they also have a powerful significance for our lives today. You'll learn what it means to know God, to be changed by His favor, and how to lean into a redeemed future with an expectation of wholeness, goodness, and harmony. This book will bring theology into your life in a very practical way, as Nietzsche helps you to reflect on how each of the 15 words might look like in everyday life. If you're interested in what the New Testament has to say about God, God's people, or God's world, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.